Oftentimes, we're in a section of Scripture like we find ourselves. A very familiar section of Scripture here at the tail end of what's known historically as Jesus' week of passion. There, with the, coinciding with the Feast of Passover, Jesus in an upper room with his disciples sharing a final meal. Several things happening within this meal, things of which we're familiar from Jesus taking these items, the bread and the cup, that have been established types for generations and redefining them, articulating that these things, while they might have meant these ideas as a foreshadowing today and moving forward, they'll represent my body, the bread, the, my body, and the, the cup, my blood, the essence of our salvation, the atonement and the purification Jesus instituting what we know as communion, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. A night, a dinner that would also include the beginnings of the betrayal. Jesus identifying Judas, Judas getting up and leaving to go about his evil, evil deed, his evil task. A night that would include a dinner that would include a holy, odd moment where Jesus breaks all protocols, and he does something, for the most part, scandalous, you could say, that he gets up from the table and he girds himself, and he pours water into a basin, and he takes the position of a slave, something that was even outlawed for Jewish slaves, and he goes and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. He gets to Peter. Peter says, no, you're not going to touch my feet. Jesus says, if I don't wash you, no, he doesn't refer to the feet. If I don't wash you, Peter, you'll have no part with me. Knowing these men would fail that night, Jesus is letting them know he loves them and he cares for them. And where we left off in the midst of this, verse 30, they sing this hymn at the end of dinner. No doubt one of the Hallel Psalms recorded for us, Psalms 113 through 118, they get up and they head to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, again, this is all very familiar passages of Scripture, very familiar territory, especially the things we'll look at today and, and, and the few weeks to come. Very familiar. I was reminded, though, in a very comical way about how sometimes our familiarity robs us of of really the brilliance of the story itself. I was sent this video. I'm not going to play it. But it was a home Bible study. It was a group of guys and gals in, in, a, in, a, in a living room sitting there going through this very passage of Scripture. And no doubt there was one guy, and you could tell the way that the video was framed, he had no idea about anything regarding the Scriptures. He had no idea about the Bible, that he was actually going through this for the first time. And so the leader of the home group, they open it up, and, and he goes, yeah, we're going to be looking tonight at the death of Jesus. And the guy just goes, what? He dies? Spoiler alert. You could have given me a heads up, and then he thinks for a moment. He goes, wait a second. Don't tell me. Don't tell me it was Judas. Yeah, it was Judas. Oh, you're kidding me. One of my favorite characters is the traitor. But like he's, he's, he's hearing the story 
for the first time, he's like, guys, y'all got to, I'm only on season two of The Chosen. Like, I'm not there yet. It's a funny comical, but it, it just, the more I thought about it, the more I'm reminded, like, we're familiar with the story, and as a result of that, we, 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 we lose a little of the impact of the betrayal of Jesus. And if you're reading Matthew for the first time, I mean, this is as far from your mind as you can think. In fact, you can somewhat sympathize, and, and it kind of resonates the, the perspective of the disciples to these three occasions where Jesus, as they're making their way to Passover, he's like, guys, hey, we're going to get to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to get arrested. I'm going to die. Don't worry. I'll be resurrected. And they're like, right over their heads, right? Because at no point can you imagine what happens to Jesus happening to, of all people, Jesus. And so we lose a little bit of the impact of the story because, again, we're familiar. So I want you to really do your best to try to to not detach yourself from just the shocking nature. You place Matthew in the totality of all of Scripture, it's even more shocking. If you're reading through the Bible for the first time and you're going back through Genesis and then, and then the histories and then, and then, man, bad things are happening in Israel because of their rebellion and their sin. And so you've got these prophets that are like, hey, I'm going to send a savior. I'm going to send a king. And then Matthew opens, introducing us to this king. And you're like, right on. This is going to go great. This is wonderful. And then it doesn't. And it's shocking. And it hits you between between the eyes. Now, again, we, we, we lose that because we know the story. So they get done, verse 30, singing this song. They go to the Mount of Olives. Again, if you're new to our travels through Matthew, geographically, you have uh, the city of Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. The mountain next to it is the Mount of Olives. Between the two is a valley. It's known as the Kidron Valley because there was a brook known as the Brook Kidron. It's called Kidron because it, it, it's, it's, it means black. It is blackened. Because this part of the Kidron Valley and its proximity to the temple, which is located right there, especially during Passover, there were so many lambs that were slaughtered for atonement, for sacrifice, that the blood, they had an aqueduct system created within the temple complex. Herod the Great uh, designed it so that water would flow in and, and remove the blood of the sacrifices, it would, it would flow out uh, what would be the western side, and it would come down into the Kidron Valley, and it would enter this creek, and it would, it would flow away from the city. Now, that would make it blackened. And so, again, as we work our way through this story, Jesus leaves an upper room, and he's going to go to the Mount of Olives. That requires him to cross the Kidron Valley, which at this point is a torrent of blood. There is a, a, a river of blood flowing down the Kidron. And at the base of the Mount of Olives, just very close proximity to the Kidron, you have this garden. We read that they go to the Mount of Olives. As they're going, Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, and Jesus explains why this would take place. He says, and he quotes from Zechariah 13, verse 7. He says, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will scatter, will be scattered. But after I have been raised, 
I will go before you to Galilee. So right here, they're making their way. They're taking this journey, this walk, not a very far walk. As they're making their way, as they're, they're talking, they're discussing, Jesus is like, hey, all you guys are going to bail. And it's okay. This was predicted. This was foretold. The shepherd will be struck. The, the sheep will be scattered. But don't worry about it. Don't worry about it, guys. And then he says, and again, it's an, it's amazing, it's an amazing verse. He says, but after I have been raised. Now, he's, he's referring to being raised from the dead, implying he's going to die. But he's also here, again, reiterating resurrection. He's like, I'm going to get struck. You're going to scatter. Don't worry. After I'm resurrected, I'll, I'll catch up with you in Galilee. That's what he's saying. But Peter answered. Interesting, wasn't asked a question. But that's just kind of Peter's MO. And he says to Jesus, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. <laughs> Place that in a little context. Notice, even if all are made to stumble. And who is he referring to? As they're walking, Peter's like, yo, Jesus, all these other cats, I completely get it. I know them, you know them, I get it. You'll be strut, they'll scatter their sheep. But I'm, I'm the rock, right? I'm Peter. Even if they all bail, hey, you got one guy. One guy that's got your back. Ride or die, baby. Me and you, Jesus, going deep. You can imagine the other guys like, who does this guy think he is, you know? But Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you, assuredly, Peter, there's something here that you can, you can be assured of, assuredly, that this night before the rooster crows, so before dawn, you will deny me, not once, uh, not to who, but three times, you're going to deny me. You think you're big and bad. You think you're Petros, the rock. You compare yourself to the other guys, and you're like, I get it, weaklings. But you got me. I'm there. And Jesus is like, no. In fact, three times, bud, before the rooster crows, you're going to step in it. You'll deny me. And that word deny, it's interesting. It doesn't just mean that he like, that he's kind of like, like playing a role or he's trying to like, no, the, the word it means like to completely reject any and all associations. It's not just that like, well, hey, yeah, I know Jesus, you're right, but we're not that close, you know, you know, we're just Facebook friends, you know, but I got like a thousand of them. So, you know, we're not, we're not, we're not buds. It's, it's not, it's like to reject all association and relational connection. It's not just that, that you're going to kind of like temper down your connection with me. It's that you're going to deny having any connection with me at all, Peter, tonight. Peter says to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Now, I just from a from a, a a large observation you're never in a good position when you find yourself arguing with Jesus okay just you know in its most basic understanding of the passage you finding yourself on the other end of an argument with Jesus is not a good place to be 
Why? Because he's Jesus. No, <laughs> Peter, you're going to deny me three times. No, I'm not. Uh-uh. Nope. Arguing with Jesus never ends well, as we'll see. And then the rest of the disciples are not to be, you know, left out. So they all jump in. Yeah, we're right there with Peter. So they all said, we're not going to deny you. Even if we die, we won't deny you. So Jesus came with them to the place called Gethsemane. So again, our geography, we crossed the Kidron. At the base of the Mount of Olives, there is a garden. You can visit that garden today. There are olive trees in that garden that date back to the time of Christ. It's an amazing place to go. It's an amazing place to pray. It is a bucket list type place to be. So Jesus goes to Gethsemane. The word Gethsemane literally means the garden of the olive press. It was a place in which that they would take, obviously, the olives, and they would make uh, olive oil out of it. They would make fuel. It's a, it's, a, it's a quiet place. And so for a moment, I just want you to try to get yourself in the scene. It's, it's late. It's probably sometime after midnight. We don't know the exact time. We know from another gospel author that it's cool out, that there's a chill in the air because of its connection with Passover and the way that uh, the lunar feast, there's a full moon. They've left Jerusalem, which there's always a hustle and a bustle. They've left, you see the temple. Everything is lit at this point either by moonlight or by torch. But it's quiet. Most of the people by this point are fast asleep. Jesus leaves the upper room. You can hear in the distance the sound of water. Water from the brook, the blood. You can smell it. It's potent. Jesus gets into this garden. Again, there's a coolness, a crisp to the air. It's late. And he goes because he wants to pray. He says to the disciples, he says, you guys sit here. I'll go over there and pray. It's likely, again, circumstantial, that Jesus frequented the Garden of Gethsemane, that this was a, a go-to spot for him, a place that he liked to retreat to, he liked to visit, he liked to be, he liked to pray. He had a prayer spot. Uh, circumstantially, we can say that because Judas um, knew where to find him. Jesus knew, Ju Judas knew where Jesus would go. After a dinner, <laughs> just like Jesus, I know exactly where he'll be. He'll be in this secluded, private garden. He'll be praying. So they get there. Jesus tells the disciples, you guys chill out. Y'all stay here. I'm going to go further in. Another uh, gospel author tells us that he takes with him further in to the garden uh, three individuals, uh, Peter, James, and John, who kind of make up the inner circle of the 12. So they go further in. He takes with him Peter, the two sons of Zebedee. And we're told that Jesus began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. I, again, I think it's, it's worth noting that Matthew is here. He's in the garden. But he is not in the inner circle. He's not Peter or the sons of Zebedee, James and John. So Matthew is getting an account of this from the observations of one of the three eyewitnesses. 
And they note, they describe to Matthew that as they're, as they're going in, this is before we're praying, this is, you know, we're hiking deeper into the garden, that these men, they, they, they could see that Jesus began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. There's a lot of, of passion in, in the Greek, the way that these words are framed and the structure. Before they ever get to the prayer, they can recognize just visually something about Jesus, his demeanor, his face, his attitude, that he is being overcome with emotion. What, what must that have looked like? The Greek word that we have translated deeply distressed, it's an interesting word. It can be translated as homesick. Like the idea, Jesus is sorrowful, he knows what's coming, but, but there is a disconnect. He is no longer, he, he's recognizing that there's a separation, that there's this, this longing to be home, that he's, he's distressed and he's homesick. And so he says to them, he says, guys, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to the point of death, stay here, watch with me. And we're told he goes a little farther into the garden and he fell on his face and he prayed. Again, loud enough to be heard for it to be documented. Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Mark, in his account of this scene, translates what Jesus says, Oh, my Father, as Abba, which means Daddy. It's an Aramaic term, Daddy. Jesus is distressed. He knows what's on the horizon. He knows what's about to occur. Nothing is going to happen outside of Jesus' purview or outside of his control. He knows that this is the culmination of his mission. This is why he's here. He is to die for the sins of the world. He that knew no sin this night would become sin for us. Jesus doesn't know what that will feel like or what that experience will be. And so he's there and he's honest and he's real and this is probably one of the most human moments that you see from the divine Jesus, where he prays, Abba, Father, Daddy. If there's any other way for this cup to pass, if there's any other way translated for what is necessary to occur, if there's another way to save these people from their sins, may it be, this is the time. Jesus speaks openly. He speaks honestly. There's a rawness and a realness to what he's uttering here. You know, we can look at a lot of prayers. The famous one, you know, the, the disciples' prayer, the Lord's Prayer. If you want a great example of prayer, this is it. Because, because Jesus, if Jesus does it, it's good for us. But Jesus has no problems coming before his Father and being real and expressing his desire and pouring it all out, laying his cards on the table. If there's any other way, 
if there's any other way, if this can be accomplished any other way, please. But then note, nevertheless, you know, if you, if you want a word to include in your prayers, for your prayers to be biblical, you can spend a portion of your prayers telling God everything you need to tell him and giving him all the advice in the world. God, I think this is how it should go. As long as at some point you pivot your prayer with a nevertheless. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Not my will, but your will. As long as there's a surrender to your Father. God, I think I've got it figured. This is what I'm asking, but nevertheless, what I want most, what's most significant, what's most important, what's most vital is that your will is done in my life and not mine. You know, so many things within our lives should, should be filtered through a very simple question. It's a tough one. Do you know what's better for you than God does? That's a heavy one because we like to think we know better than God. Because what God has for us sometimes isn't comfortable and it isn't nice and it isn't cushy and it's hard. And it's okay in those moments to say, Lord, get me out of this to pray for escape as long as the nevertheless, I know your will is perfect and it's divine and it's better than mine. You know more. You, you knew me before the foundations of the world. You know my, my beginning from my end. You've created me. You know me better than anything. So you know what's best for me that I even do. Do you pray that for your kids? That's a hard one, isn't it? For your kids. Because, hey, they're your kids. God gave them to you. But do you ever pray, hey, Lord, this is what needs to happen. Nevertheless, they're not my kids. They're yours. And you know it's best more than I do. Jesus emulates here how we pray. Hey, we can pour it all out, but we check it to the reality that God is sovereign and he's in control and will we trust him? So Jesus prays this, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, what? Now, this is the guy that's just like, hey, ride or die, Peter. And Jesus is like, hey, it's going down tonight. Watch. And what is Peter doing? He's sleeping. Like, a guy can't even, like, hey, you got the first watch. And he's snoring. And can you imagine the tone? What? How that must have sounded. Was, it, was there a chuckle to it? I like to think there was, <laughs> what? Oh, Peter, what? Could you not watch just an hour? So he reiterates, watch and pray, lest you enter into, unless you, lest you, I can read, lest you enter into temptation, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. We'll come back to that. Again, a second time, he goes and he prays, Saying, oh my father, if this cup cannot pass from me unless I drink it, your will be done. 
And he came and he found them asleep again. For their eyes were heavy. And again, it is the middle of the night. And they just had a big dinner. And they're in a cool garden. And Jesus is praying. I can sympathize a little with, with this. So he left them, verse 44. He went away again. He prayed a third time, same thing. And he came to his disciples and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So you have this, this scene with Jesus and his Father. This prayer. This reckoning of his will with the will of his Father. This surrender. The acceptance. While Jesus may have entered this quiet place, disturbed and distressed and emotionally gripped with anguish, my guess is by the end, just the way that it reads, doesn't it, that there's a tenacity now we find within Jesus. That there's no longer this distressed Jesus, but there is one filled with resolve. There's a tenacity, a strength. And he comes to the disciples. You guys are supposed to be watching. You're supposed to be praying. And they're sleeping. And Jesus tells them, he says, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And can't you kind of get an amen and an amen to that? I mean, if you really need a life verse, doesn't that apply to all of us? It, it resonates with, with what Paul would say in Romans 7, where he's like, you know, the things that I want to do, dadgummit, I don't do them. And the things that I will not to do, those things I find myself doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, Paul would say, you know. And that's Paul writing to the Romans. Talking about honesty and transparency. The spirit, and notice it's small s spirit. It's you. Your will might be willing, but you're weak. That's why you need a capital S spirit. Paul would say, if you don't want to fulfill the lusts of the flesh, which should be our goal, what do you do? 12 steps, knuckle down, man up? No. If you don't want to fulfill the lusts of the flesh, Paul would say, walk in the spirit, and you won't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Your spirit, little s, is, is weak, and you'll succumb to temptation, which is why we need to be filled with the capital S spirit. So that we don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. <laughs> Guys, and again, I think that there's some tenderness. Guys, I know, I know you're willing. I know you're trying. You're, you're really at a disadvantage. <laughs> because even though you want to do these things, even if you want to pray, and you want to stay awake, and, and you don't want to deny me, you got all these I wants. And I know they'll, they'll be all failures. Flesh is weak. We're going to have to deal with this flesh thing. We're also going to have to deal with this spirit thing. Don't worry, I got it. Which is why when you get to the book of Acts, before Jesus ascends, he tells the disciples, he says, hey, go into the world with the gospel, baptizing in the name of the, name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send you 
out. But first, don't go anywhere. Literally how like the first chapter plays out. This great commission to go into the world with the gospel, and then it's like, but before you do that, I need you to go to Jerusalem, chill. Hang out for a little while. He says, for my spirit to come upon you for power. Your spirit would be willing to go out, but you don't have the strength to resist temptation, the strength to succeed, the strength to fulfill my call. I need you to go and wait because I will give you what you need. I will equip you with my spirit. So the scene plays itself out. Now here we are. It's cool. There's this breeze. You're there. The moonlight is shining uh, through these olive trees, these beautiful olive trees. You've got the Kidron, the brook. You're outside of the temple. No doubt this cohort that we're about to see, they're not flying in incognito. Probably from a distance before you could even see them, you could hear them coming. The sound of voices and the torches and you got this breeze and Jesus is with the guys and he's waking them up. He's like, hey, y'all get up. It's going down. Get yourself ready. And while he was still speaking, behold Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude of swords and clubs came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. They send, and there's some, you can, you can read the scholars in regards to how many people were included uh, in this group. Um, best number I've seen is around 600. I mean, this is, this, is, this is a group. Now keep in mind what the dynamic is. Jerusalem is overcome with capacity because of the Passover. There are millions of people in the city, outside of the city, around the city. And who do the people love? Well, just a few days before this, Jesus enters riding a donkey, and they hail him as their king. To the point that as they're hatching a plot, the chief priest describes Jesus' enemies are like, we can't go after him during Passover. It's patriotic, it's about deliverance. This is a powder keg. It was a recognized powder keg because the Romans would increase their delegations, their forces. Pontius Pilate would be in town. Though he would be in Caesarea is where his headquarters would be. For Passover, he would be there. There would be a, a massive Roman uh, presence within the city. And so they're not going to arrest Jesus, but they're given this opportunity. They need a time, a location, away from the people where they can swoop in, they can take Jesus. And Judas gives it to him. We saw this last week. For 30 pieces of silver, he's like, guys, I can give you a time and a place, and it'll be perfect. And here as Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, as he's there in prayer, Judas brings this cohort, and they're armed to the teeth. Why? Because if this goes south or sideways, they're going to have a problem. They're hoping they can come in. They don't know if they're going to get resistance. I think they're anticipating it. They don't know what they're going to get. Are we going into a trap? Is Judas a plant? You know, they're playing it all out. And so they come in, Judas leading the way. Now his betrayer, verse 48, had given them a sign, saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one. 
sees him. That's interesting to me. Again, it's dark. Again, only moonlight. You got torches. You got the rattling of, of swords. But this really does dispel some of the common misconceptions about the physical nature of Jesus. Uh, Jesus was not nine feet tall. He didn't tower above everyone. Why? Because Judas would say, get the big one. Not only that, but all of the, 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 the ancient depictions of what Jesus looked like have him glowing in the dark. He's got a halo. Again, Judas, it would have been easy. He would have been like, hey, get the guy that glows. If Jesus looked like a European Swedish man, like Fabio, and he spoke, you know, God's language, Old English, be like, get the guy that, that, get the albino that speaks funny. Again, we're told in the scriptures that there was nothing about Jesus' physical appearance that brought any attention. That he just looked like one of the guys. He fit in. To the point that they're coming to arrest Jesus, and Judas is like, hey, I'm going to like, I'm gonna have to identify him. And I'll do it with a kiss, which was a traditional greeting in Middle Eastern culture. Kiss on the cheeks. And immediately, Judas, we're told, went up to Jesus. He said, greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. But Jesus said to him, friend. Why have you come? Then they came and they laid hands on Jesus and took him. Pause. This night will end with Judas killing himself. This betrayer. Hatched a plot, whatever his motivations or intentions, he betrays Jesus with a kiss. Whether Judas wanted to ignite some type of a revolt, was trying to push Jesus into a corner to act. We don't know. Greetings, Rabbi. He kisses him. And what does Jesus say? Friend. That's the first word that comes out of Jesus' mouth to Judas. Friend. That's heavy, isn't it? I think that was the end of Judas right there, friend. Notice Jesus doesn't, doesn't call him a betrayer, doesn't rip on him or refer to him as an enemy. He says, you're my friend. And, and I think, and maybe I'm going too deep to this, that there, is an, there was an invitation into that. Judas, I know you had a plan, you had this thought, however it was. You can still be my friend. doesn't have to end this way for you. You know, when we, when we betray the Lord, and we do, and when we deny the Lord as we have, and we, we, we play the wayward disciple, where we step out in our small s spirit, in our own will, and we fall flat on our face, not in prayer, but in stupidity. And Jesus comes, and what does he say? <laughs> Friend, you're not my enemy. You're my friend. And there's an approachability to this, a tenderness to this. They took him, they laid hands on Jesus, they took him away. They're in the midst of this scene, according to John 13. 
And I've debated a little bit of like how much moving forward I'm going to try to, like this, the intention of our series is not to give you a, like a, um, a harmony of the Gospels. It's just to, to present Matthew's text as is. But there is a scene in the midst of this, according to John, who was an eyewitness, again, John 13, where they ask, hey, are you Jesus? So there's, whether that came before Judas's kiss or after, just to verify that they were getting the right guy. I mean, that would have been embarrassing, right? You bring the wrong guy before the Sanhedrin, and they're like, that ain't Jesus. Like, so they want to make sure. And they say, are you Jesus? And Jesus says, Emiego, I am. And John says, boom, everyone was not to the earth. Jesus, are you Jesus? And he uses the Exodus 3 name for God. I am that I am. And the very words knocked everyone to the ground. Again, Jesus was not being taken by force. Jesus was very powerful, was very capable. Now, I think it's in the midst of that craziness, the midst of that dysfunction, the midst of, of, of just the chaos, that suddenly, verse 51, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest. We know in another place, his name's Malchus, and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think I cannot now pray to my Father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that this must happen as such? And in that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple. You did not seize me. But all this was done, the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then the disciples forsook him and fled. Suddenly there was one, a dagger man, pulls out his sword. Now, Matthew doesn't identify him. John, more than willing. John's like, oh yeah, yeah, if you've read the synoptic gospels, you know there was a guy that pulled out a sword. It's Peter, you know? John's like, yeah, it's, 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 it's who you thought it was. Again, why, why would John include the name? Matthew wouldn't. Well, again, it's the timing of when they were written. Peter was probably very much alive when Matthew was writing his gospel. And identifying, I mean, you would be naming Peter as, as a criminal here. Malchus would be like, I knew it! Eyewitness. So Matthew probably leaves him out because it would have indicted Peter, given him problems. John, writing after Peter's already dead, is like, yeah, it was who you thought it was. It was, it was Peter. Now Peter pulls out a sword. It's chaos, and Peter's got to live up to the expectation and the promises. I promised Jesus I'd ride or die. So here we go. We're doing this. And I give him some credit to that, right? Everybody else runs. Everybody else scatters. Peter, let's do this. Now, that's about the gist of his credit. Because you've got a whole bunch of Roman soldiers and well-armed uh, mercenaries from the temple guard. And Peter's like, all right, we got to do this. 
I'm not going after that guy. Who does Peter go after? <laughs> he struck the servant of the high priest. A guy who's not armed and probably a teenager at best. So Peter's like, we're doing this. I'm not, I'm not going after you guys. I'm going after the little guy. <laughs> and he strikes him, and he cuts off his right ear. Now, most people in this time period are right-handed. And so the only way that Peter, with a right-handed sword, could cut off the right ear would be for Malchus to be running away. So it's not just that Peter went after the servant kid, but he went after the servant kid that's like, yeah, I'm out of here. And he cuts off his ear. Didn't hit him in the head. Peter's a fisherman, not a swordsman. He cups, cuts off his ear. Now, we're told by Luke that Jesus, in the midst of this, picks up the ear, puts it back on Malchus's head. Again, cleaning up aisle, aisle one on Peter's mess. In the middle of saving the world of sin, he's dealing with Peter's knuckleheadedness, you know. Also covering up the crime. I mean, it's hard to make an accusation to cut my ear off if I still have my ear on. We know his name, Malchus, likely because he got saved, would be my, my assessment. But Jesus turns to Peter. He's like, put your sword away. Do you think I need your help? Again, Jesus uttering, just he's submitting here. I could call angels from heaven. We could, we could have a bloodbath. But he's submitting to it. And they all flee. Man, I was so determined to get through the whole chapter. But it ain't going to happen. Six trials will follow. We don't have all six of them recorded in Matthew's gospel. Uh, we'll look at the ones that, that Matthew records for us. And the focus of this will also be just... Again, Peter. I relate to Peter, do you? You know how many messes I've made that began with good intention? The, the heart was there. But I hadn't surrendered my will to the Lord's. Peter's so relatable. Jesus is like, hey, I'm going to die. I'm going to get betrayed. All of you, you're going to scatter. And Peter's like, no, I'm not. And his intention is good. He goes, I, I love you, Jesus. Peter had made a vow. He had made a commitment. He had forsaken all. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. And Peter was like, I'm there. And he was willing. And Jesus is like, this is going to go down a dark path. And Peter's like, I got your back. I got your flank. And then it hits the fan, and Peter's willing to at least do something. Everyone else runs. But Peter's like, I'm going to live up to my promise. I promised Jesus something. The problem with Peter's promise is often what the problem is with ours. It's a promise made when Jesus didn't ask us to. Did Jesus ask Peter to make a promise? No. But Peter did anyway. And he failed. You know, the essence of your relationship with Jesus is not about the promises you make to him. 
It's about the promises he makes to you. It's not about you never leaving or forsaking. It's about his promise. I will never leave you nor forsake you. You can say in your will and in your flesh, I will never leave you. And there will be times you do. Praise God that our connection to God is not predicated upon us. And that precedent isn't just reinforced throughout the New Testament. You go back to the father of our faith. God made a covenant with Abraham. And he cut a bunch of animals down the middle, and they were to walk through it. And he says, you're not going. I am. Because my promises to you are not predicated upon your performance or your obedience or your ability or your tenacity. Because I know you. Your spirit might be willing, but your flesh is weak. So this deal with you and I, it'll be based on me, on my faithfulness and my goodness and my ability and my ableness. And so when you fail and you get so filled with condemnation, I made this promise and I failed. And Jesus is like, I didn't ask you to make a promise because I knew you'd fail. Friend, friend, Peter's so relatable. And there's this parallel between he and Judas. Both played the fool. Both will demonstrate, I don't want to get too far ahead, sorrow. But the Bible tells us that the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow is what comes next. It's not about being sorry. It's there's a sorrow that leads to repentance. And a sorrow that leads to destruction. Repentance. What does that mean? It's a turning away and turning to someone. Your problem is when you get out of line and out of touch and distant from Jesus. And repentance, when I sin, when I blow it, it's not turning around and being like, oh, I've got it now. It's I'm coming back to Jesus because I don't. And you do. And I'm going to let go. And I need your spirit. So, Father, Lord, we just let that settle. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name. The spirit was indeed willing to get to chapter 27. But we didn't get there. May you be filled with God's spirit. May you walk in his grace. Ministry at Calvary 316 occurs when you go out those doors with the gospel of Jesus and impact your world. The church was instituted to equip saints to fulfill their ministry. And you have one. Every single one of you has one. It might be a neighbor. It might be a coworker. It might be your kids. I know a lot of moms come to church and you're like, I quit. I can't do it. And I hope you come to church you spend time with Jesus, and you get filled with his spirit because you can't, but he can. And you get encouraged to go back to your mission field 
which have snot running down their nose and cry and stay up all night. But that's your mission. And you can't do that apart from his spirit. So maybe your mission is your kids or your spouse. What is your mission? Everyone has one. And your job, filled with God's spirit, is to go walk in love. All right? So, with that being said, go into the world. God bless. See you next Sunday.